This morning, I'm really delighted because we had planned to have a session um, with four wonderful speakers. For various reasons, a couple of our speakers are unable to join us and they give us extreme apologies. Um, but what I am excited about is to introduce Mary Graham, who's a Kombu Mary elder and um, an adjunct associate professor at the University of Queensland and is one of Australia's leading uh, thinkers and philosophers on both general governance and political science, but also remarkable insights into the governance systems and the culture of the First Nations people um, on the continent now known as Australia. So what we're going to do this morning, because we've got a little bit of extra time, I am, of course, disappointed that we don't have our other speakers. Um, and if I could have accessed some recordings from any of them, we would have shown them to respect um, their wishes. However, um, the flip side of that is having more time with Mary Graham is always fantastic. So we're going to ask Mary to talk uh, for about 30, 35 minutes, and then she and I will have a brief discussion about some of the, um, the issues that she raises in terms of building a new economy and, in fact, reflecting on the dominant society in Australia, both economic, cultural and social and governance aspects of our society. And I'm hoping that we can then have some Q&A from all of you guys. Um, so that we really use this um, session to explore a completely different way of thinking about interacting with each other and building the kinds of systems we need to build to care for each other. So, um, um, Michelle, sorry, and I'll just add, um, so Amy Mann as well is available um, to um, to speak. And so um, straight after Mary, yeah. Yeah, okay. Right. Thanks. Um, Mary, can we hand over to you? Um, I can unmute. Yep. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Okay. okay. Um, so, Mary Graham, would you like to share with us some of your insights into how we can build a new economy? <laughs> okay. Um, well, thank you very much for inviting me to present here today. Um, and I'd like to um, first acknowledge the... Um, the traditional owners, the Awabakal and Waramai peoples, and to their uh, acknowledge their ancestors um, and their uh, traditions uh, at Newcastle. Um, I haven't been to Newcastle. I've been flying over it. That's for for a while. But um, yes, I, I say hello to their their people and their ancestors and their elders. Uh, I'd also like to say. Um, uh, to introduce myself in this way, um, my my own mob uh, here on the Gold Coast, um, the Combermary um, um, mob, my my own particular mob, the language um, group as a whole is uh, Yugambeh people. That's all on my father's side. So the whole Gold Coast area is basically Yugambeh Combermary. Uh, on my mother's side, she was a Waka Waka from the um, South Burnett district in Queensland, um, about three, two, three hundred kilometres northwest of Brisbane. Um, she was on a reserve uh, under the Act, as they used to say in Queensland, but my father wasn't. So that's a whole other sort of story of colonialism in, in the country, but particularly in um, Australia, uh, in Queensland, I should say. Um, and I've worked in Aboriginal affairs for a very long time. Um, so uh, the, the way I would usually normally start off is by talking about um, uh, ancient migration out of um, Africa, the very conventional start. But 
the way, the other way I wouldn't mind starting is to say that I was um, not that I know very much about economics, <laughs> which is a just as well I admitted up front anyway before I launch into things. <laughs> um, but I've been influenced in the last couple of years um, by a guy called uh, an economist called um, Michael Hudson. I don't know if people are aware of him, a Michael Hudson, an American um, uh, economist, a very, bit different apparently, I think I gather, from a whole lot of other economists. Um, but he starts off his understanding of e economics from ancient times, which is probably why I was drawn to him. He goes way back to ancient civilizations. Um, and he talks about things like uh, that are familiar with Aboriginal ideas. That is about the idea of a law of obligation, a law of obligation by the rulers. They were rulers, you know, way back then in ancient times um, and how they ran their societies and so on. And they had ideas about like um, forgiveness of debts and things like that, which was part of that kind of idea of a law of obligation. Um, which I, I thought was uh, wonderful because the law of obligation, a law of obligation, um, is a central part, I guess, of Aboriginal thinking. And it starts with um, the idea of us being um, um, born or created by land itself, not by a god, no god, uh, or gods or anything like that. Um, but land itself has invented us. Um, it's it keeps it helps us to be human. It made us human. It helps us to be keep being human, and it continues. It's looking after us. Not that it's that it's that is its um, um, uh, prime motive. Of course, it just is. You know the the environment. It just is. Um, so what actually starts out of that is this emergence of a the idea of uh, a custodial ethic of looking after. So it goes something like this. The land has invented us. It continues to look after us. And that is making, helping us to stay human, as in survival, of course. Uh, but also, if you want to look at it in further different ways, science and so on, we're walking upright, you know. Um, uh, we continue to... Um, um, not only evolve, but just to, simply to live, um, birth, living, death, so on and so on, so biological. So all different senses of time. But what emerges also from that is the idea of it's a relationalist view of life, not a survivalist view of life. So it goes like this, a uh, great reciprocal relationship emerges. It looks after us. We look after it. We're obliged to for this custodial ethic and go on, so on and so on, goes back and forth. And eventually what, emer what really emerges is the idea that all meaning um, comes from this relationship with land itself. So we're not just um, like the first like conservationists or something like that, um, but that the whole meaning of, of uh, life, of existence, it is centralised on this idea that land is the major relationship in our lives. So first relationship between people and land, second relationship between people. And the second one is always contingent on the first. So you're learning ethics and a custodial ethic from, from this relationship with land, from a relationless relationship, 
rather than a survivalist relationship. So land isn't seen as um, uh, something to be um, controlled, owned, fought over, or anything like that. It's basically there for us to look after it and to keep this meaning, this custodial ethic going, and so on and so on. So the attributes of it are uh, of this relationship, relation, relationality, if you like, is balance, balance in all things, autonomy, um, uh, ethics. There's no actual Aboriginal word from what I gather. I could be wrong, but uh, from what I gather, uh, our own language, other people's language that I've spoken with, uh, there's no word for ethics, but there is a word for law, L-A-W, and a double-sided thing like the coin, um, law on one side and L-O-R-E on the other side. So one side is to do, to do with the, um, uh, the social and political ordering structure, um, of of the society of the polity, you know? um, and on the other side, the the stories, the event, the uh, creative narratives about all of that in every different area across the whole country, you know. And so, and there are literally numberless there. There's so many of those stories. They haven't all been written down yet, and um, and most people don't know the the full extent of it, and and so on. So, um, oh, and the other one is place. Place is extremely important. So autonomous, autonomy, balance, ethics, the law, uh, and place. Uh, everybody knows that old uh, Cartesian saying, um, I think, therefore I am. If it was an Aboriginal idea uh, equivalent, it would be I am located. I am located, therefore I am. So place is that important. Um uh, balance is really the balance, of course, between human society and the and and, and the environment. Um, the main thing there is um, the custodian idea, uh, custodial ethic, um, that um, the the management system, not a control not a control system, but a, a management system, and um, the relationship between different groups the balance between different groups. So no idea of a state, no idea of a dominating group of um, tribes dominating everybody else. So no hierarchy, no centralised domination, political uh, or social uh, in any way whatsoever. All autonomous groups across the whole country, the whole country is full. It's a bit like um, a continent full of local governments, if you like. No... Um, you know, no central centralised system or anything like that. Um, hundreds of places, hundreds of local governments, hundreds of genesis. No one genesis for the whole whole country. Nothing like that at all. Um, if you're familiar with the term multipolarity, this is multipolarity in one country instead of global multipolarity, like around the whole world, which is what some countries are trying for. You know, um, balance, gender balance. Men and women run society. They, they actually run society, women's law, men's law, women's logic, men's logic, and so on and so on. Uh, balance between power and authority. This is a really important one. In every other ancient society, and again, I, I learned a lot from uh, Michael Hudson's um, idea, uh, um, notions, uh, understandings of ancient societies and, and, their, and their politics and their economics. 
Um, so power and authority are usually conflated in ancient societies. So if you have power, you have the authority. If you have authority, you have the power to do whatever you choose to do with your society because it's it's a, it's a hierarchy essentially starting off with a hierarchy um when you when you conflate power and authority there's always got to be something a, a pharaoh an emperor royalty um very 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 rich person very very rich people the one percent they run the whole of the hierarchy run it all you know and so on uh nothing like that in aboriginal society it's lateral it's a heterarchy in Aboriginal, uh, in, in political theory, a flat society, a soft hierarchy with the idea of older people running things. You have to have capacity, which is amazing, isn't it, nowadays? You have to have people with great ethical capacity to run societies <laughs> and no democracy. You're not; They're not voted in. In fact, they don't even, a great majority of Aboriginal people don't care for democracy at all because you end up with the wrong people, as as has been proved <laughs> lots of times, actually, but um, proved for, for all time, I think. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so um, authority rests with uh, um, older people. Um, it's a bit like a gerontocracy, if you like, uh, something like that. Um, but you can have younger people like middle-aged to run because they've got to be of exceptional capacities and so on. And it it works a bit like this, a quantum of knowledge that people have, a quantum of experience, but all relying or riding on right conduct, proper ethical right conduct. And that's, you, you get the right people to run. To, they're not running it, the whole, the whole polity is running it, running society. Uh, and power always, always has to rest with the people. They have to rest with the people. And I could see that via this law of obligation that uh, Hudson talks about when um, every now and then there had to be, in the ancient world, there had to be uh, a forgiveness of debts, which is not only good economics, but it's proper and right and, um, you know, it's ethical and so on. Um, and then also from the pure... Um, um, what do you say, practical point of view, is that uh, they won't rise up <laughs> and try and overthrow their, their rulers and so on. So you have a kind of stability there. And that's the, that's the big thing about the relationalist view is that it'll, it, it keeps a stable society going uh, along with, in, con in combination with the idea of um, um, that people's confidence in their system in their governance, this, that is the system, um, is it stays, that confidence is always there. But as soon as it becomes cruel or uneven or unequal or um, just lopsided or out of whack, out of balance, and if it's permanent sort of out of balance, then people will, you know, they'll rise up and so on. Um, autonomy, we are autonomous beings. We are all autonomous beings, every human being person um women are definitely autonomous they are their own boss it's not a hierarchy there um the especially the land itself is is its own autonomous entity um it owns itself um and autonomy is not just individualism in the western sense it's the idea of having autonomous regard for the other. In fact, you can't even be autonomous without other people also being autonomous, basically. And one autonomy 
has to recognize the other autonomy and so on. So it all comes out of this philosophy, if you like, or worldview, German word, Weltanschauung, I quite often use, meaning worldview, but like a philosophical worldview, um, that um, uh, that um, that the whole the whole group has, but that also every individual clan group has its own particular worldview too. And no one worldview overrides another. That's how come there's no state uh, that ever arose here. But there's ec economic and technological reasons for that too also, which I'll go into in a minute. Um, so those attributes of relationality are what really um, – really emerged out of this idea of um, uh, the relationship with land. Survivalism is everywhere. Survivalism is just there all the time. Um, you might be bitten by a snake. You might be find yourself in shark-infested waters. You might be sacked after 30 years working in a job, you know, very unfairly, along with a thousand others perhaps, uh, all because the CEO is going to be paid about um, four times as much as he had been pay being paid and so on. Um, so, Modern economics is definitely a world of survivalism. It's a survivalist ethos writ large in a way. And again, this is what uh, Michael Hudson talks about actually in modern to do with modern economics. Um, so um, it the the idea of people having this idea about other people's land extends to in this um, in the in the in the uh, um, governance system is that you you have conflict because quite often people um, historians and so on might talk about it, what what do you do about this natural conflict that arises and so on. Well, the idea and again this comes back to the balance I, I guess is that you're you're allowed you are allowed or um, conflict happened but not to the extent of invading other people's countries. And that is a really unique thing for for an old society to do this. Um, so you can fight on the land, but you can't fight over land. So you can, you can have conflicts, differences, um, arguments. You're not, it's not necessary to actually love your neighbour or anything like that. Um, you just simply don't invade their land. That's all. And, um, and it's a way... Uh, of enhancing, but also securing uh, long-term stability um, and uh, right, correct behaviour uh, and security, above all security, uh, between um, different clan groups. So it didn't – this clan system, this, this whole uh, si um, ancient system didn't turn into uh, tribalism as so many um, anthropologists want to say, you know. Uh, it didn't turn into something like that so that you fought continually. And this is what happened when big agriculture starts a long time ago. Um, gradually, uh, people start fighting over especially um, resources. Um, Aboriginal people didn't use the management of resources to, con to, to compete over them. Not at all. They used it as systems of governance to uh, to work together, to um, have uh, a system of to keep this um, custodial ethic going. So they collaborate, they cooperate. The whole story, from what I gather, this is what happened with the uh, Murray Darling um, 
a thousand miles long, I think. I'm not quite sure how long, but very, very long. And dozens of groups who live along its along the whole length of it, and they they uh, collaborate in uh, looking after the whole place, looking after the river, and so on. So it lasts and lasts and lasts and and forever. So don't think it's um, about trying to be good or anything. In fact, there's no there's no no there's no notion of a perfectibility of human beings becoming. Um, you know, good and virtuous and being rewarded in heaven because um, um, along with the belief system, well, there isn't a belief system actually, uh, but there there isn't any um, notion of God, a God-like figure um, or gods. So no hierarchy, see? So no no leaders as such, no um, um, that kind of hierarchical system with um, pharaohs or kings at the top of it and, and, and so on and so on. Uh, <clears throat> no notion of heaven or hell, So, no, but also um, uh, no notion of um, worshipping anything or bowing down to. This is why the autonomy is there. So you're autonomous, so you don't go bowing to anybody or acknowledging anyone is higher than you. So no hierarchy, no levels or ranks, anything like that. Um, and it just simply goes on like that. And as I said, it's not to do with for virtue for reasons of virtue or goodness or even or morality or anything. The the real point is it's efficient. That's really what it is. It's an efficient, rational system, sustainable, and that lasts uh, in a stable system forever, essentially forever, as long as land is looked after. I've heard elderly Aboriginal people say this. Look, everything will become clear. Just keep looking after the land. Everything will become clear, <laughs> which is a huge thing to say, you know, because you've got to – how do you understand all of this going on, you know? Now, so the last thing I guess I would, would mind saying, talking about is, uh, is the idea of the technology. So, as we all know, ra- roughly around about 10,000 years ago, large agriculture starts – like big agriculture. There always was agriculture here in different parts where it could be. Uh, and the brilliant uh, writers, Bruce Pascoe, Dark Emu and Bill Gamage, The Greatest Estate on Earth. They're the two brilliant books that tell you all about exactly how Aboriginal people technically in this complex way ran the country, basically. So, so uh, big agriculture starts, small agriculture is already here, but not big agriculture. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. One of the major ones is that driest continent on earth. But the key, one of the key factors is um, is to do with there's no, um, no uh, domesticatable animals. There's no native cattle, no horses, no buffalo, a- Asian buffalo, you know, not, not bison. Um, uh, no camels, no elephants, not even anything like um, sheep or goats that you could utilise their, you know, their, their, them uh, for their goods, you know, the wool and all that kind of stuff. Um, nothing like that. So you couldn't have had large agriculture even if you wanted to because uh, apart from trying to turn your own people into beasts of burden to gather produce, um that you would have had to do that, and uh, and slavery just wasn't in the in the system, in the governance system, in in a, a, um, Aboriginal society. So, um, for large agriculture, 
um, and this relates to the old-fashioned um, racist insult that's still around, of course, that Aboriginal people were so primitive they didn't discover the wheel, you know, <laughs> uh, which is uh, ridiculous. Um, well, they didn't. They didn't. Um, need, uh, they didn't want uh, wheels. They knew very well the form of a circle, of course, you know, with um, suns and moons and things like that all around. Um, but um, so uh, because you don't have those domesticatable animals, you you wouldn't have had, they wouldn't have had uh, the wherewithal, like as in a vehicle with wheels, to carry or to cart produce to a central place a central place which um, sorted things out counted them and then recorded them um, so no writing either because of that because just because of it's the driest continent on earth and no domesticatable animals no writing and writing is a big catalyst for further um, invention uh, and so on um, so the whole system from then on starts to become rigidly hierarchical and competitions is starts in a very very serious way between between countries between cultures and so on all over the world wherever large agriculture was and as we know um writing um starts uh in those ancient places especially uh in the middle east in uh, india and in china that's where it all starts uh, writing and so all of the that the technology falls in with with all of this change in in um in um because what's been um um technologized if you like is uh actual uh, you know animals all the animals that were required for that you know and of course the technology is based in three areas the domestic technology the farming, of course, which is still it's far, it's a, it's going to stay farming uh, agricultural uh, societies for a long time, so they need that kind of new technology. But the big technology is weapons technology, and that starts then, and it goes on forever, right up till now, because you need that for competition. You also need it for making a lot of money. <laughs> um, weapons, the weapons industry, as we all know. Um, so all of that, all of that, including the writing and everything, large agriculture, it all does not happen in this country because of these particular factors. So that's how come we don't uh, we don't build um, we don't build um, you know uh, what do you call it uh, monolithic sort of things, um, great architecture. Um, uh, huge architecture, you know, statues and pyramids and stuff like that. Um, but we do build um, some. We do build um, things like um, a monumental ideas of the possibilities of the kind of um, uh, stable societies that you could have. All for treating land in a different way, if it comes from that, you know. Also, a, there's a little bit of uh, plain good luck there. <laughs> Also, or luck, I should say, whether it's good or not, um, an ocean on both sides, um, the Antarctic to the south, and of course to the north, a huge array of different philosophies and religions and so on that that are there, and that the relationship between Aboriginal people right across the north, right across the northern part of the continent, um, is with some of those cultures. But trade, one of the best relationships, if it's done properly, is, is in trade. And so 
luckily for us, <laughs> they came and they went and they came and they went for nearly 2,000 years, actually, apparently, according to the historians. Um, and But they never thought to take over or they didn't, uh, they, they might have thought that it was too much, <laughs> you know, uh, and so on until, you know, over, you know, 300 years ago or 280 or whatever it was. And then finally a people come whose idea of, Entering into other people's land to take it over was um, was the was the usual way of doing things, you know. So they come and then the whole thing changes, but not not um, not entirely. There is still this idea of a kind of particular kind of governance, a particular kind of economics, if you like, uh, the economics that says. Um, Yes, you can even utilize, or if you want to use the word exploit, resources, but not to the detriment of other people and not to the detriment of the land itself. You still have to have this custodial ethic, but you can have this utilizing or exploiting of natural resources uh, and so on. But the, the, the point also is that um, it is a, um, you could call it a, a sacralized ecological stewardship that is put in place and that is permanent, you know. Um, and if we can, we can, uh, you know, this is what I, I think of as uh, what Nina is trying to do really, really firmly, you know, really trying to put this idea across, but the ways of doing it too, the complex ways of doing it, taking into account, um, um, getting on with each other. It helps to have a logic like Aboriginal people do too. It's not a Western logic. It's not the Greek Aristotelian logic. Um, with those rules, um, if you've done, anybody's done logic in high school or university or just dabbled in it, um, where um, rules, um, the rule for identification, the rules of uh, non-contradiction and the big one, um, the rule of the, or the law of the uh, excluded middle, Either you're a friend of the Americans or you're an enemy. Anything that begins with that, either or. Either you're right or either you're wrong, you know, either you're right or wrong, good or bad, and so on and so on. Anything that begins with that is Aristotelian logic, you know. Uh, in the old days, old days, 50s and 60s, there was the idea of, um, uh, what do you call it, um, the non-aligned movement. Countries like uh, India... I think, and what used to be called Yugoslavia and various other countries, they were part of this. They could sit on the fence, you know. This is before either or came in. Um, but uh, that that is uh, that is not um, either you're a friend of the Americans or not, you know. And now that is the rule. That is the global rule that everybody takes on or ignores at their peril and so on. Another rule is all, all people with red hair are mad. I know... I know a girl who has red hair or somebody with red hair. They must be mad. Um, so it's um, you can see how that is very, very useful for propaganda purposes that you every, every now and then come across in the uh, newspapers, in the media, uh, demonising whoever is not popular at the moment, you know, whichever people or countries and so on. Um, so all, uh, all Aboriginal people are drunk and violent. First premise, second premise holds that up. The final conclusion um, confirms all of that. All Muslims are violent terrorists, so on and so on. So, you could, so it's it's the it's the logic of the arena, really. The logic 
the logic of the winners and the losers and so on. So Aboriginal logic's nothing like that. I've looked at Chinese logic for some time to some time now. It's very interesting. It's very clever. Uh, paradoxical logic, it's called too. Um, so uh, every, the only way I can understand it for myself is looking at the yin and yang symbol, black and white, bit of black and the white and vice versa. But the line between the black and white is curved. That means it's flexible. It's a flexible line between two or more different positions, um, political positions. Um, and uh, uh, not, not, not at all like the severe straight um, severing between right and wrong, you know. Um, so they accept, they accept things like contradictions, paradoxes, ambivalence, ambiguity, and so on. So they accept all of that into an argument. Western logic wants to filter all that out because they're after certainty or the truth, as they'd say, certainty. Everybody else practically in the world knows that um, there's millions of truths, you know, there's not one truth to be found out there somewhere um, and that everybody has different views about things. Everybody, everybody even in a culture has different views about things and so on. So that's how you, you have to accept ambiguity and ambivalence and so on. So Aboriginal logic's not like that either, but it's closer to that than it is to the Western logic. The Aboriginal logic, you have to look at the language map again. It goes like this, hundreds of hundreds of um, places. Every place has a dreaming story or a creative narrative or genesis, hundreds of genesis. Uh, a, a dreaming story is the um, law for that place, L-A-W and L-O-R-E. It's the law for a particular place, so hundreds of laws. Some of them overlap with in different areas. Um, a law for a place is the truth with a capital T, um, a, a truth about that. Uh, whole of existence of that place. So hundreds of truths, no absolute truth. In other words, no absolutism in thinking. Absolutism, you'll end up with religion and Aboriginal thinking is nothing like religion because it relies to, uh, relies a lot, unfortunately, on faith. And faith is too unreliable. You know, it's strong sometimes, it's weak, it's discovered, it's lost, it's... Um, powerful or whatever you know so it's too unreliable to, so you don't have faith there's nothing the dreaming it doesn't rely on faith at all it's more like a, a psychology of life if you like that's learned from land from learned from the experience of relationalism with land and so on so uh and a truth is simply the perspective of the whole of life of all existence from a particular place so it turns out to be uh, the equation turns out to be that all perspectives are valid and reasonable they're all so what it is it sounds wonderful and it is in lots of ways because it's a suspension of judgmentalism for purposes of social and political ordering that's what it's for you have to get on with each other you have to maintain a custodial ethic um you have to have the big thing security so don't go around judging judging people or invading other people's countries um if you want to maintain security and so on um, so, uh, but you have to have both this custodial ethic, this is the balance part, balancing act, <laughs> the custodial ethic along with this logic. If you had just the custodial ethic, you'll end up with religion. So you need a logic that helps, helps that. And if you had just the logic on its own, that, that 
that's good in one way, but it could be dangerous too if you took it to, to its nth degree. You mustn't take the all perspectives are valid and reasonable right to the end because then you'll end up with fascism <laughs> because you'll end up with something called, um, uh, well, I've been calling it um, extreme relativism and that's a danger. It's what um, uh, ha uh, Hannah Arendt, I don't know if people are familiar with the name Hannah Arendt. She talked about nihilistic um, relativism. That's what you'll end up with, with if, you hand, if you have that logic to its nth degree. So you just have it for non-judgmental non social and political reason, reasoning. You have both in, in balance altogether. You try and have a whole lot of things in balance with each other and so on. So I, I suppose Nina is got to work some of these things out too, between economics and technology too. Where is this technology leading us and who is controlling it? Uh, well, we all know who's controlling it, the 1% actually. But, um, you know, how, how do you bring those two things together? That is, that's what I would love to know myself. We'll leave it there. Thank you, Mary. Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. I always, every time I hear you talk, I learn new things and also have um, the relationist ethos articulated more clearly for me, which I, I am so in, uh, inspired by. And I think we're all driven by it at the heart level. So mm. the practical level. So, so thank Mary, thank you so much. Um, we're, um, Megan and others have actually been very uh, efficient in finding another speaker to join you who oh, um, is good. really lovely. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy each other. So yes. in a moment I'm going to introduce Amy Meehan, um, mm. but I just want to let folks know if you have questions for Mary, keep putting them in the chat. And when we open up for Q&A at the end, um, I'm collecting all the questions. So so if everyone um, in your own way can do a little air clap for Mary, I like to call them the daggy air clap. Or if you want to, if you want to press daggy. the button that shows whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, there's a button, but I can never find Reaction. it in <laughs> Yes. <laughs> right. So, look, okay. thank you, Mary, for your wonderful okay. and opening and pr provocations for all of us, particularly inside and inner, to mm. find ways to work together um, that mm. can help shift these Otherwise, yeah. all right. Okay, thank so, you. So, yeah, thank you, Mary. Thank you. We'll be back to you in a minute, so don't go anywhere. Okay. Well, you've got time for a cup of tea. That's about it. Don't go. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> um, so um, what I'd like to do now is um, we're very grateful to Amy, uh, a wonderful young woman who's been um, doing um, some remarkable work around governance and around um, participation. Um, I might actually let Amy introduce herself because um, I'm a bit new to her, so I apologise, but... Um, if you're there, Amy, can you unmute and just speak up and then I'll spotlight you? Yep, sure. Thank you. Thank you so Hello. much for um, asking me to speak and thank you, Auntie Mary. Uh, that was wonderful uh, and I agree. Uh, and I might overlap with um, what you've said. <laughs> I think I think it's highly likely. Um, I suppose my uh, background and a few of my colleagues are here today. Hi, John Shield. Um, Megan, uh, we've worked together in kind of the not-for-profit slash volunteer space. Um, originally I uh, studied in arts, so arts music, uh, and I suppose my background has been many and varied retail, public service with the state government, um, but also now in innovation, business innovation, precisely for the reasons that, that Annie Mary said is that I suppose I'm interested to moderate uh, for the better the way technology is rolled out to fit in with land um, and, and also to respect the limits of our earth. Um, so 
just to give you a bit of who I am and to acknowledge country, I'm Amy Mann and I'm Gomeroy Irish Australian. I live in uh, Wanneroa country, Maitland, New South Wales. Um, and I'm very grateful for my Gomeroy ancestors. I'm also grateful for the Waramai ancestors on whose land I grew up. Uh, and I suppose the most recent talks I gave with Nina um, were regarding participatory democracy and how de nat uh, natural democracy, um, the way Mary described that there's this um, autonomous, these autonomous groups um, and, and consequently the skill of each of those groups. And I suppose what I, I talked about at Nina and, and I'll kind of... Uh, perhaps vary from today a bit because this is economics, not democracy, but it is all connected, um, is that centralisation of power uh, actually de-skills us and, and the natural democracy uh, that occurred across the world was eventually centralised in, in certain countries, but in Australia we kept our nations, our mobs kept our autonomy uh, and consequently, we have a lot of skills uh, and a lot of knowledge of this land that hasn't been given over to others um, and, and doesn't relinquish that. So uh, I suppose what I also talked about um, in the past is that when you centralise power, you also create learned helplessness which is connected to that um, you know loss of skill and I suppose that's something that indigenous uh, nations that we've all experienced through colonization is being detached from our land and our connection with land um, and the spiritual systems they actually connect to the economy as well because our economy is our land um, and I suppose when when colonization happened um, there wasn't, there wasn't the appreciation of complexity of the evolution of the plants, animals and people here. Um, and I suppose a lot of it was cleared out and even um, I think it's uh, not Bruce Pascoe, I think it's uh, Call of the Reed Warbler, Massey, that talks about it being treated as mongrel land. Uh, and it's not mongrel land. It's very well adapted, uh, unappreciated by the mainstream culture, except, you know, obviously we see bush foods and such now. Um, but we had cultural systems that, and still have cultural systems, it's not a past tense, uh, systems that ensure that things aren't overexploited. Um, and the interaction of, of democracy and keeping that alive and that the kind of um, merit-based systems of, of keeping knowledge, uh, they're actually survival things. And even though we didn't have writing systems, we had song lines, we have our, our dances, all of the um, complex knowledge uh, uh, and I'm not sure if you've read mem mem Memory Code, any of you, which isn't Indigenous written, but um, Memory Code uh, is, is, is a really good way to communicate what we 
have tried to carry on and has been fragmented, and that is that all that complex knowledge uh, is held in song lines. It's held in our brains. It's taught to each other, and it's our university. That's our library. It's our stack of knowledge is um, an, an enormous amount of knowledge that keeps a sustainable system um, and sustainable values uh, going. Um, now I'll just uh, I'll just scroll down, just going over some parts of, of what I want to cover. So I suppose the the responsibility to land and a little bit of what um, Aunty Mary talked about is that um, there's this responsibility to country that ensures that economy thrives. So you know we don't we don't sell up our country and move. You know we don't spruce it up and uh, move house. We have an ongoing responsibility to that land. Um, and that ensures the economics. So I suppose people may have um, read a bit about the um, the commons and why, the way some commons are mistreated. And actually, I'll be interested to to hear the talks on the commons uh, later in the conference. Um, this is the way Indigenous people, you know, we manage it really well because there were common areas, um, but. Uh, ensuring that, that that connection, that cultural connection, uh, as well as the economic connection, um, that there, there, it's a multifaceted system that um, keeps the economy solid. Um, yeah, I'll just also... Uh, now, I also agree with everything that Annie Mary said about autonomy because uh, obviously that's what has gradu gradually been lost, um, uh, not, not only in Indigenous um, colonisation like of Australia, but it, it actually arrived with, uh, you know, the, the, the first fleet, et cetera, and it has actually um, saturated itself into this, this new country from, from the old country, from, from England. And the way that system was built, uh, you know, was hierarchies that, uh, that, that felt that they were the most responsible and therefore they should control. Um, but I suppose I, I'm interested to have more talks with people to see and, and what my primary um, goal has been with my various organisations like Beyond Zero Emissions uh, is to see how our way of thinking, which is much more earth-centred, which includes a democracy for all creatures, um, how that, that um, perspective on technology can help um, moderate the human-centred uh, attitude that uh, evolved through agriculture and, and hundreds of years, which is something that... Um, Massey also puts really well is that um, as societies grew and natural democracy um, fell, well, didn't fall apart, but as populations grew, uh, it turned into, you know, these systems of managing so many people and cities and villages um, that I'm interested to, to see how uh, this autonomous, skilled, 
way that, that our mob thinks, if it can actually intersect with, you know, the if, if we actually come halfway, um, how that can actually affect the way things are rolled out, uh, whether it's technology, the food systems, it can go across a lot of areas um, to actually moderate and um, I don't know if compromise is there a compromise, I guess, to actually bring a, um, a much more sustainable uh, way of doing everything. So I think I've rambled on enough. <laughs> I hope that's okay and um, hope to have more yarning, um, Annie Mary. Thank you so much, Amy. Um, and look, we're very appreciative that you could jump in so very quickly to join us and um, to share some insights. And what I'm going to do now is um, I might actually pose a question to both of you and then um, give folks a bit of time to add some more questions into the chat if you'd like to ask a question. So, um, uh, Mary, just so you know, you're on mute. But um, one thing I'd like to ask both of you is if you could pick you know, one or two things, for example, the New Economy Network to focus on that could enhance our ability as often non-Indigenous, but not always um, non-Indigenous peoples in Australia, to really change the culture of how we work together and how we can achieve our goals. What would be some of the advice or particularly, you know, from a First Nations governance system, what would you think we could do to enhance our way of working? Mary, did you want to jump in first? Uh, Mary, I can't actually hear you. I don't know if... Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> We're so high tech This is useful. <laughs> I forgot. No, um, well, just going back to the, what we were saying before uh, about technology, if Nina could sort out the whole thing with the whole thing um, about how... What role, uh, how how do you, I mean, it's almost hopeless to say control. You can't control it because it just goes on and on. And the the 1% or the richest, the most powerful, militaristic and all that kind of stuff, those people, those countries are watching it all the time to see how it can be useful to them and to make money. How do you get around all that, you know? I mean, how would Nina, that, that's why I, I don't have any ideas about that, but that's I'm waiting for you to <laughs> all the other speakers to come up with something for, for that. Yeah. For that, but but the other the other thing that I've always thought is, and he, I think um, Hudson talks about this too, is to be more uh, on board. Um, the idea of and, and I know most people, if you're in Nina, you're already anti-war anyway, but to see that that's extremely um, um, important to argue and do things about. I, I don't know what, but fighting, having that ad idea, a, a more positive idea about what, how to settle conflict, even things like that. Um, for example, the idea of autonomous regard. You know, you know that in international relations, there's this theory about um, what do they call it? Strategic autonomy. It's like the whole of life. Did I just talk about that? I'm not going to remember now what I talked about. But um, it's, it's like a board game. So the whole of the globe is seen like a board game. And states, you know, with more or less states, uh, shift, uh, shift this board game 
and the pieces on it around all the time. And the whole thing about board games, while they might be extremely attractive and fun, you know, above all fun, and um, and you may even win money actually sometimes, um, but uh, it's all about survival. It's about survival. It's fighting to win, and if you've lost, it's about survival. Do you know what I mean? It's a, it's a game of survivalism, really. That's what it is. Um, so it, Nina could come from any kind of direction about <laughs> tackling that because, to me, war, and this is what Hudson says too, I'm not saying, um, that war and economics, uh, they go together like, a, like that. They're so bound up with each other. Mm-hmm. So somehow, I don't know somehow bring that more to the fore in in Nina's thinking and doing and and so on um, because I, I I actually think that whole populations not just the West Western populations but they take it for granted you know they take actual a liquid war somebody called it liquid war oh. is for take is taken for granted that it will it always has been and it always will be you know mm-hmm. plus the, the, the smart ones, the rulers of the universe or masters of the universe, whatever they call them, um, they know it and they know that that's where huge money is to be made, huge profits, huge profits. So so while attending to actually looking after the land, you know, the whole environmental, biodiversity, all of it, try and look at the other, to me, the other side of the coin is the, the insecurity. The security comes from this way. The insecurity comes from this other way of, of war, war-making, war-mongering, uh, and being um, uh, acceptance of the whole terms of reference of war is the other side of this coin. So pay both, pay, pay big attention to both. That's all I'm saying. How you do that, I don't know, apart from just simply being generally anti-war and saying that, but I don't know how else. Um, uh, maybe you could get into more into the logics, different logics, different ways, methods of um, settling conflict, um, you know, um, approaching conflict, conflict, me- uh, sorry, um, what do you call it? Um, conflict resolution. Conflict resolution stuff, you know. All what particular ways would you recommend, Mary? I mean, you oh, know, the God. traditional way in the Western organisational mm. culture is to mm. bring the, the, the angry people into a room together and that, make them share their feelings. Yes. I think part of those processes, they're not always and fun. They're not always fun, though. No. <laughs> <laughs> what would you but, recommend? But, but no, no you, you have very, very skilled um, people Smart people who are like peacemakers, peacemaker type people. They have a good psychology. I've seen the most amazing, quite, quite um, chaotic, raucous kind of. What's, and these kind of people are there. They never lose their cool. You, you might call them from those police shows negotiators. <laughs> They're expert negotiators. They really are. <laughs> they keep an even keel. They don't try and control, control. They don't go and get angry with their control. They stay calm. And their behaviour brings everybody else's behaviour down a bit. But you've got to have not one, not, not like a referee. Um, it's a little bit like um, the closest thing I can imagine is the old-style European idea of duelling. Dueling. They don't have a referee, you see, you know. It's formal. It's protocols. It's all rules about – and you have seconds and you have observers and you have all that. So it's all very formal. When you ha- when a conflict is about to start or is, go- is going, 
is actually going. I know it's there's a couple of conflicts here, right here at home, <laughs> at uh, in the, among our own mob. <laughs> so we're working out old traditional ways, uh, bringing it back, re-strengthening ways of um, putting our own governance systems into place because all of that was thought of, you know. You know, the whole thing of introducing ourselves the way we do, it's all good manners and all that, but actually it's a way of maintaining peaceful relations. That's mm. the real intent of it. So more formality. I know it's it's uh, that's a bit hard because Western um, Western cultures especially – not so much other cultures, but Western cultures, they've spent the last several centuries getting rid of formality like this. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Or putting it to the side. But and, and, you know and what, unfortunately, Mary, just unfortunately pretty, we've been influenced a bit like that too. Yeah, casual, and I think in casual. the West, shedding shedding formality mm. is often seen as part of the enlightenment and mm. the, the pure liberalism of mm. the freedom to be an individual Liberals, as opposed to being locked in a hierarchy. That's but what like, you're saying, mm. respectful protocols, you know, yes. can enable working. Um, and right. I think Westerners yes. might need to engage with what that looks like without hierarchy. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's, exactly it's a totally right. different culture. I think yeah, it's totally, totally different. Mm. Yeah. And I think um, more, more Indigenous voices, and I know that sounds self-interested, but um, if, if I can draw on some of what Arnie Mary was saying, but also kind of put up that same... Um, mm different kind of paradigms have you got mm. human-centric way of thinking which is it's not blaming it's just um, unconsciously mm. and inadvertently what um, what uh, mainstream culture has yes. evolved over hundreds of years mm. Mm. Um, whereas indigenous thinking is is more um, you know mm. an everything way of thinking as in mm. democracy with creatures democracy with with mm. each other democracy <laughs> with every element of this earth mm. um, is having having more of us at the table and that's I suppose um, because there's this culture of dismissing us uh, that mm. we don't know things um, mm. that's it's hard to get us to the table as well as us yes. not necessarily wanting to come to the table yeah, because yeah. we've been treated so badly yeah well the Murray but, Darling thing eh? they're still being kept out eh? as far as far as I'm aware Aboriginal people but being kept out of the yeah. Fixing up of the problem. So more of us, um, <laughs> if possible, at least yeah. one voice, but if you can have yes. more, I reckon. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely, yes. absolutely. Um, thank you so much for those comments. We've still got um, 20 minutes, which is great. So if you don't mind, um, if you've got the energy, I'm going to fire some questions off to you from our group. Um, I've been collating some of them here. So um, Kat has asked a lovely question. Um, Mary, um, she'd like to ask Mary if the Aboriginal people's understanding of exchange was more aligned to a gift economy or was it more like paying it forward or was it just a barter system? Um, oh, gee, I don't know. Um, it's not so much to do with... Um, it's, I don't think it's so much to do with anything kind of virtuous. Do you know what I mean? Of being good and fair and things like that. Um, it is. A, it is. You do inhabit a moral world. So um, your treatment of land is already telling you what the ethical way of doing things is. You know. So yes, whether it, what kind, whatever kind of trading kind of thing it is, you have to do it with this idea of a, this autonomous regard, always like that. Do you know? Um, so yes, it's barter. It was bartering. Yeah. 
diff- uh, and f- incredible things like uh, various things that would could only have come from coastal regions being found way out at an, um, um, Mount Isa or in the central desert area. You know, how could they have got there? They've been traded back and forwards and, and gradually moving across the <laughs> landscape, you know what I mean, to, to there, you know, uh, and so on. So, um, but always with this idea of the autonomy of different clan, clan groups, you know, and their their security, their rights, even though the, uh, the understood old idea of rights is a Western construct, basically, but people do have rights, actually. It's the, it's the law, you know, the law says that. And you have to respect other people's, you know, in their place, their being, and so on. So I don't know if that answers, uh, not quite sure. No, that's, that's a good answer. Thank you very much, Mary. Um, there's a question now for, um, uh, I wonder if Auntie Mary and Amy can comment on the importance of spirituality I'm sorry. Spirituality as part of what can change a culture um, and bring our outdated Western thinking closer to First Nations understandings. I might go to Mary first, then Amy, Mm -hmm. um, just to keep order, to have a protocol. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) To have a protocol. (laughs) Respectful, Um, non-hierarchical protocol. um, I I don't know if you just simply, because I know a lot of, a lot of uh, Westerners, they're not religious, but they do believe in a spirituality, you know, they believe in it. But, but if they, um, if you actually believe in it, then it becomes a faith thing too, you know. Um, and I know it's very hard to kind of separate these things out, but it's like, um, you know, like ethics is a doing thing if you start off from that point. Ethics is a doing thing. It's not some high ideal that you're, you're kind of trying to reach. You know, you actually literally have to do it. Otherwise, it doesn't count in a way. <laughs> you can say at the end of your life, well, I tried my best. You know, I tried to do the right thing or be a good husband, wife, whatever, citizen and so on. Um, but you literally have to have to do it. You know, um, uh, it, it, you can relate it to all kinds of things like um, people. I was watching this film the other night about honour, you know, something about honour, honourable behaviour. Um, it's... You don't wait for the moment to be honourable, uh, and quite often you have to be. You you are honourable, and it's all you don't think about these things. But you, you're honourable when it, when you uh, don't have to be. You know, it's not a case that you have to be only waiting for that moment, but you are without having to be. Do you know what I mean? I'm not quite sure if I'm explaining it properly. It's absolutely excellent. Thank you, Mary. Yeah, and Amy, and to me, and that's spirituality, you see. Mm-hmm. That's spirituality. You see the other person as a spirit spirit person. You you know, I um autonomous regard. You have a it's like regard. It's like regard is a hundred times more than respect. It's a it's quantified respect. Basically, there's a French word. <laughs> I quite often use these other language words sometimes, but uh, the French word is regarder, regarder, regard, look. But the, the further word is regarder voir. It means behold, actually. Behold, see, it's a, it's a sacralized version of look. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Saying the same thing, but regarder voir. So we, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we did have a, a language term for that. But it's a, the act of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, Mary. Thank you, Amy. Did you have thoughts about that? Um, yeah, it's um, it's absolutely crucial and sent and and essential to everything going forward. And 
I'll give you an example. Um, I, I was invited out to a friend's property that I hadn't visited before um, because some flowering had happened and she didn't know what they were. And uh, just being out on that land and discovering, just discovering. Yes, um, just discovering, eh? Yeah. You know, it's so, there is so much fulfilment and there is so much to discover, whether it's picking Mm. things or tasting things. And my heart was so full. Mm, Yes, eh? After that experience. um, So moving, eh? Yeah. Yeah. And so that can actually, I believe, replace a lot of the consumption Mm. and the hobbies and things that, you know, whether it's, Mm. you know, those various hobbies that we take up our time with Mm. can actually um, be filled by the beauty, the wonder, the Mm. medicine of nature and um, the spiritual connection. And I think that, that our systems, our mob systems of spirituality, that's what's anchored us. It That's is. what stopped us going mm. into, and, and not only that, knowing that everything is connected and if we do something here it will affect the thing next to it and that will affect the thing next to it and, and so on and, and ripple out, mm. knowing mm. that everything matters. Mm. Um, that the spirituality actually, and this is not something I've discussed with elders, so maybe Mary can give me, <laughs> um, Auntie Mary can give me feedback later, but I actually think Australia needs its own rituals. Oh, yes, I think we yes, need absolutely. our own culture to develop yes. that is not going to appropriate from Indigenous culture but yeah, is right. an intersection because our mainstream culture need to be able to um, uh, have systems that anchor us yes, absolutely. in a way that, that we don't go off the way we have to the destruction and, and the yes. extreme destruction that we've got too. So yes. it's all part of a very complex, mm. very old system that has ensured our survival mm. um, and, you know, going on for, for, for mm. tens and even 120,000 years, yes. you yes. know, the, the respect for that and mm. it's not to raise ourselves above because I don't think um, I would want to do to mainstream culture what has been done to us. Mm. It's mm. not mm. to make us superior. It's to share and to make sure. Oh, share, all yeah, absolutely. Yes. It's, and it's can really, I just interject that a lot, oh, sorry, of, no. um, a lot of lawyers are looking at legal pluralism as a way to open up the Western mind. We've had a very mono-everything, monostructure for legal domination of other cultures and so Anne Polina and others talk about legal pluralism yes. and Mary and I have talked yes. about that. Yes, right. Absolutely. How do we foreground uh, Aboriginal knowledge in this culture right. without disrespecting everyone else? And how do that's we do it? exactly right. Hey. Just get out of the way. Yeah, that's, we've talked about this, eh, about why are, see, why are rights more, more huger, bigger than obligations? And obligations are sort of like a second cousin or poor cousin to rights. Do you know what I mean? It should be the other way around in a, in a sense, from our point of view. Yeah. Obligations are the big thing, big thing, you know. Yeah. And uh, all, all that sort of thing of spirituality comes into, yeah. into all that. And I, I want to suggest another book that I should have mentioned before is The Story of Feeling by Bill Niji. Uncle Bill Needy, I think he's passed on now. But it's the story about how feeling um, and in, in relation to land makes us human, actually. That's what he's really saying, you know, that the, the land. And, of course, other uh, people have written um, the American uh, white uh, writer, she's passed on recently too, mm-hmm. Deborah Bird Rose, Dingo Makes Us Human and so on. But just 
just something else I wanted to say about spirituality itself. It is everywhere. Do you know, everybody has a spiritual experience. Like Amy, you just said before, you know, it's so moving. Well, a whole lot of people see that. But I guess Aboriginal people see it in relation to land itself or nature, if you like. Um, heavens, uh, like I had a spiritual experience, I'm sure. Um, when uh, when you listen to a certain piece of music, you know, as I've gotten older, I actually like classical music, <laughs> actually. Uh, but I like all kinds of music, you know. <laughs> I draw the line at country and western, that's all. <laughs> Sorry, some country in Western I like, like guitar playing, but um, but uh, but also reading um, reading famous Russian novels, too. You know, or any kind of novel, it it affected you so much. Truly, it um, I felt like I was um, uh, soaring in the air. Do you know what I mean? And it was a real, genuine spiritual experience. So anybody and everybody can have a spiritual experience, you know, uh, just simply to be more open to it, I suppose. Mm. Thank you, lovely ladies. Um, with your permission, I'll keep going with some questions. Mm. Um, <clears throat> there's one here. Um, Anne would like to ask Mary to explain a little more about the idea of no democracy. Um, but oh, yes. <laughs> and I think it's actually really important for Westerners to be... Um, to, to engage these ideas from you, Mary. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, rather than uh, so, the idea of no democracy, but rather elders who had capacity based on knowledge, experience, mm. conduct, um, mm. and it seems relevant now when mm. we see democracy failing in Western mm. societies. So, mm. Mary, could you speak yes. to that? Yeah. Well, um, I knew someone was going to ask this because <laughs> it, it throws up. Uh, it sounds like a, we're disagreeing, Amy, but we're not really because um, no. I'm, go I'm going by the old, uh, old Greek idea of democracy, how they worked it out, how very different it is now. Do you know what I mean? And I used to be on the, um, uh, what does they call it, ATSIC, Aboriginal mm -hmm. Torres Strait Islander Commission. I was on the group and that was an experiment in democracy that people in Canberra, white and black actually, by the way, thought that we might uh, do well out of to understand the, the, you know, the virtue of democracy and so It didn't quite work out like that. <laughs> Um, because um, I think Howard got rid of it after two terms. I was on it for two terms. Anyway, they um, so it was an experiment in democracy. We were voted, people were voted on. But the problem was, uh, and, and this is the actual political system of dem democracy I'm talking about, Amy, you know, not, not the general idea of that everybody has a right to have their say. Do you know what I mean? That sort of thing. That's the problem with now that they don't actually and that, people like the one percent or the very powerful they use use democracy as a almost like a fig leaf do you know what i mean oh yes we all believe, believe in it and agree with it and so on and then that's the last time ever you ever hear any opinion from people do you know what i mean mm -hmm. because the whole yeah that sort of thing um so when we had a res, re, research some research done about um a, 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 a group of aboriginal people without government help or anything like that had this re research into what kind of system would we like and that's when we came up with um they came up with the idea of a national congress see which also didn't last which was deliberately defunded and, and so on it's taken away because it was starting to do good work actually you know that's how it always happens um anyway when they were asking people all around the country research environment uh, sorry research uh, interviews um, focus groups and so on what kind of system would you like something like sis would you then they asked them would you like uh, 
democracy, a kind of different kind of democracy like ATSIC or something. Well, something between 70 to 80% of people said, we don't want anything like ATSIC. We don't want democracy. We don't want that. And the main thing was that the kind of people who were um, voted for uh, didn't turn out to be the best. <laughs> um, all kinds of people with not good characters, and I'm not saying, but the majority were good people, you know, really good people. But some people got on who were basically, um, how would you put it, um, um, opportunists. That's the most politest thing I could say, opportunists. And we know democracy is full of opportunists in every country that has democracy. They're all ready and waiting there and they might have a lot of money or they might be backed by a lot of money and so on. And that's exactly what happened. And that's why they said they don't, they don't want to be in a position where they're being forced to vote for someone or being threatened, actually, literally, this is what happened, uh, being, being leaned on or being bought off. Because I thought, I'll, that's that system. That's how that system works, and it really does work quite often like that. Uh, what do they call it? Um, dealing, um, backward dealing, backroom dealings, and yep. so on and so on. It's yep. made for it. Do you know what I mean? So they didn't want anything like that. But <laughs> what made made me laugh was uh, when I heard about all this. Um, the people who didn't vote for it, um, uh, um, they. They said, uh, no, sorry, the, the group that was doing all of this, you know, setting it up and so on, they said, well, what about all the people who did vote for it? You know, um, we can't leave them behind. You can't leave people out, you see. You've got to look at the whole polity. Uh, well, all right, what we'll do is we'll have a little bit of democracy just for them. <laughs> I thought as a very <laughs> Aboriginal solution, that. All, all views are valid and... Uh, yeah, everybody's valid and, you know, and and, so, and you've got to look after everybody. Don't leave people outside. Don't have insiders and outsiders. Look after mm. everyone and so on. And that's what you learn from looking after land and so on, you know. Mm. <laughs> I just had to laugh because... And, and they did. They had one particular part of the National Congress that were where people were voted on. But the great majority of it, the chambers, they had chambers, three chambers, Equally divided between men and women, 40, 20 men, 20 women, 20, and all the chairs were all co-chairs, male and female and so on and so on. So, we, but yes, we'll have a little bit of democracy. That'll satisfy. <laughs> Nobody goes Love away it. unsatisfied. <laughs> um, Amy, and, did and you... that takes care of conflict too, actually, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> needs. Amy, did you want to respond in your kind of understandings and perceptions of democracy <laughs> in its many forms? Uh, yeah, um, I suppose, um, and I really like um, feedback from Aunty Mary on this, the yarning validates the, the yes. goal. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, yes. so if you don't have the yarning, Consensus. As, as, yes. yeah, as Aunty Mary was saying, then, then um, you know, if you're not saying, look, I disagree, and then you have a yes. proper yarn about why. And a proper argument. Have, a, and have a an argument. proper argument yeah. and, and yarn it all out and, yes. and get to a conclusion. Mm. And instead, if it's just a tick box process of that person, yes. okay, and then like at the is. end we just did what we wanted anyway. Yes, yes, um, yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So no, I suppose right, I've, I've, ex I've experienced um, yeah. exactly what Aunty Mary's saying through various settings, including... Mm local government and state government and yes. I suppose this is a benefit of, of mm -hmm. even the trauma that that we go through is that we have we we know of our old systems mm. and now we're experiencing these other systems that don't work yes and we're yes they don't them. work they don't yes. work 
Yeah. And we're experiencing them in ways that um, mainstream Australia don't necessarily experience. So we're actually mm. finding out the faults mm. and, and not just us, but anyone yes. who's become a victim of crime, mm. anyone who's become a victim of discrimination, Yes. Um, yeah. People who are vulnerable know yeah. we, we're actually the ones that have the knowledge of how the system, how bad the mm. system is and perhaps what should be changed. Yes, yes. Well, it comes to me, it comes back also to, you know, the idea of the law of obligation. It is already there. It was in ancient times um, for all their, you know, um, violent kind of stuff too, wars and that. Um, but it is in modern terms, uh, non-Aboriginal terms of, you know, uh, when I first learned about when I was younger about the National Health Service, that is a law of obligation being enacted. The law of obligation, the National Health Service, looking after everybody, no insiders, no outsiders, no, um, what do you call it, um, a hierarchy in that sense of, uh, and if people wanted to and w still want to have uh, better ha uh, better care, uh, greater care or some other kind of thing like that, special attention or something, well, you've got to pay for it. That's fair enough, you know. But for everybody mm. is included in this National included. Health Service. Included. Incl it, that's the main thing. It's yeah. inclusive. And uh, from what I understand, and I'm, I'm waiting for someone to talk about the UBI, Universal Basic Income, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm, I'm only guessing here, but um, if that it sounds to me like a a, a law of obligation idea, uh, mm. everybody being looked after. See, and yeah. that's that's a key thing. You, if mm. if only governments had always realised that if you look after people, um, uh, lo and behold, uh, people actually start having confidence in their government. <laughs> it's a winner. It's a yeah. winner. You know, it's a no-brainer winner. You know, kind of thing. You know, look after and, the and people, you... and they're actually grateful for it. You know. Yeah. And when you are able to participate, like I um, have um, had a, a bit to do with Coalition of Everyone and Sonia's on the call, I did Hi, Sonia, um, that, that um, the mechanisms that keep people accountable, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about federal ICACs and things, but I'm actually interested oh, yeah. in the sortition. I'm interested oh, sortition, in... Sortition, um, yes, me too. In uh, somebody talks recall, recall mechanisms, because I suppose I I've spoken to members of parliament and um, the only recall mechanism we have is um, to vote them out. And when I've actually said, hey, oh, independents oh, are, are right, on the rise, you know, we've got mm. Zali Stegall, we've got Helen Haynes, we've got more and more, mm. their eyes open and they're in a safe seat and they just go and there's this realisation that that's the recall mechanism. Mm. Um, and there's all this accountability. Yes. There's lots to talk about in the democracy space, that's, but there's probably right. not time. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, that's right, absolutely. Agree. <laughs> well, look, folks. Sorry, I just mm. I just had to go and plug my computer in. I didn't want to shut the whole conference down because my laptop battery went flat. Oh. A bit depressing. I would like to start wrapping up. But mm. um, first okay. of all, there were many other questions, um, and I know a lot of people would love to keep this conversation going. Um, Mary has been a wonderful champion of Nina, and we've invited her to many webinars and discussions. So what I might do is get Amy, Megan. Um, and some of our democracy and governance folks in Nina and others all together, and we can have a particular focus on some of these issues next year. Yes, good. Um, but I would like to extend a huge thank you to you, Mary, for your always remarkable eye-opening discussions and wisdom and kindness to all of us who want to learn. Um, and a huge thank you to you, Amy, for jumping in. Mm. Probably we dragged mm. you out of your <laughs> reverie with your cousins ready for the conference to speak. <laughs> so thank you so much for being so wonderful. <laughs> thank you. Um, can we all do um, some kind of Zoom 
show of gratitude, I, you know, clapping, waving, <laughs> tap dancing, whatever. Thank you so much, guys. What a wonderful and inspiring open to our conference. So oh, good. thank you very Thanks much. So-